to our local gatherings. So Peter, thank you very much for agreeing to kick off our Thank you very much for having me. It's a, a, a delight um, and a delight to meet over food uh, beforehand as, as well. Uh, so I've been asked to talk uh, about the arguments for God and I've, I've given myself this title of the, the arguments for theism in apologetic context because that's what we're really, uh, many of you involved with the, the text of Tasty at the CU and so on. I know. Uh, so that's the sort of uh, angle I'm going to put it into and I will talk about a few of the uh, of the arguments but I want to talk at a, at a sort of more meta level uh, about arguments for God as it were as well. Now most I think uh, theistic arguments uh, purport, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're trying to, to formalise uh, and thereby uh, rationally motivate through this formalisation a recognition of relationships that exist between God and the rest of reality, between God and creation. Uh, because God is the creator, those relationships, all sorts of relationships, exist between God and the rest of reality. And the arguments are purporting to uncover and express those relationships clearly. Uh, in each of those relationships that you can uncover, starts adding to your picture of God. Um, so very rarely do you get a, an argument for God that tries to give you the whole picture of God in one. The closest you get to that perhaps is the ontological argument in its various versions, but there of course you don't get the revelatory um, bits of you know why Christian theism, um, but here we're just talking about uh, theism. Now, I would say that many of those relationships that the arguments are trying to uncover are actually intuitively perceived. And I was fascinated to see over dinner uh, at least one or two people mentioned about sort of an intuitive uh, belief in God before later coming on to study the, the, the more sort of academic debate argument formally speaking about it. Many of these relationships are intuitively perceived by most people as being just obvious or at least kind of plausible. Um, and if you look at things like, you know, world religions by, by percentage, clearly the majority of people in the world today and historically have just believe in God. And um, I don't think the majority of them have come to that through reading a number of philosophy textbooks and, you know, etc. Even indeed when you poll um, agnostics, for example, you, you, you find here this um, majority of agnostics believe in a higher power. Uh, so of, of uh, religious uh, agnostics uh, in the US in 2017, this polling comes from, you see here this little blue slice of the pie are people who say they believe in God as described in the Bible, but they self-identify as an agnostic. Uh, a large chunk of agnostics, they're like 30, what is it, 30% um, believe, uh, don't believe in God or a higher power. But the rest of so the majority of people who self-describe agnostics believe in God as described in the Bible or some, at least some kind of higher spiritual kind of power. Uh, you can see this, I could quote numbers, uh, biblical verses, but I'm going to quote here from uh, the Roman orator Cicero. Uh, who said, uh, what could be more clear or obvious when we look up to the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence? 
Um, so similar to what Paul says, isn't it? Very similar to, to, to what Paul says. Aristotle um, says very similar, uh, etc. <laughs> now, such intuitive perceptions of divinity, I would argue, in a sort of, uh, if you've read anything about uh, Alvin Plantinga's work on proper basicality or whatever, um, they're just beliefs grounded in experience which are reasonable to accept in the absence of sufficient counter evidence. So it, it, think of it in terms of uh, the question of who has the, the onus of proof, who has the um, sort of innocent until proved guilty uh, position. Uh, and I think in practice, theistic arguments are generally a trade-off between what you might call accessibility and robustness. So accessibility, um, you know, is the argument intuitively convincing to people? Um, does it uh, have a lack of dependence upon having to have very specialised knowledge about things? Often in arguments for God, we find, you know, you listen to a Bill Craig debate or whatever, he has to explain to the audience about the information from cosmology or whatever in order to motivate their belief in the argument because he can't just assume that everybody knows about Big Bang cosmology or what have you. So um, accessibility on the one hand versus um, philosophical robustness on the other. So you know, things like the validity, logically speaking, of the argument. Or does it depend upon very specialised knowledge? So to illustrate this from the sort of, not exactly from the sublime to ridiculous, but to show these bookends as it were, um, you know, uh, someone asks, you know, why should I believe in God? On the one hand, I could do this. I could show them uh, a, a peacock um, displaying its feathers here. And I could say, well, you know, look at that. Okay, that's, that's one way to go. That might spark their intuitive recognition of their, oh, well, there must be some sort of fabulous designer and creator of the world. On the other hand, I could give them a fully uh, modal logic version of Plantinga's ontological argument. <laughs> um, which has a great deal of philosophical, uh, logical robustness, at the very least, um, but is going to be very inaccessible <laughs> to all but a very small percentage of people. And I think ideally what we kind of aim at is some sort of uh, ideal compromise between these two features uh, that suit the audience that we're talking to. And that involves uh, having to actually talk and listen to and get to know the audience where we're um, trying to serve uh, through uh, giving them an argument to help them. So theistic arguments, you'll notice, come in families. Um, people just sort of ordinary language slip into talking about things like the cosmological argument or the design argument or whatever. There's, you know, there's no such thing. There are families of arguments in these areas that deal with the same general theme. So arguments dealing with causality get called cosmological arguments uh, and these arguments can for example use different argumentative forms be it deductive or abductive and uh, and so on so the cosmological family um, purport to exhibit these causal relationship between non-divine realities and God and they fall into sort of at least the main families of the the clam version of the argument from going back to Al-Ghazi, uh, Thomistic versions of the argument and uh, more recently Leibnizian versions of the argument and then there'll be subdivisions within that. There's a whole kind of 
family. You can't just, as sort of someone like Richard Dawkins will do in something like The God Delusion, spend a paragraph dismissing the cosmological argument and then saying, I'm done, dusted, I've done with that. Um, that's just not putting your homework in. Uh, you could start with doing something like reading Bill Craig's uh, The Cosmological Argument from Plato to Leibniz to get a, an idea of the history of the argument or a um, book that was influential on me when I was at, uh, at uni as an undergrad, um, The Cosmological Argument, a reassessment by Bruce Reichenbach, uh, putting forward a new version of the uh, argument in the, in the 70s. Um, so here's an illustration that, I, that I've used in debate. Um, suppose I ask you to loan me a book and you say, well, I don't have a copy right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy and then I'll lend it to you. But suppose your friend says the same thing to you, and so on, okay? Well, surely two things are clear from this. First, if this process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum without end, I will never get the book through that process. Secondly, if I do get the book through the process of asking to borrow, that process can't have been one that went on ad infinitum. Somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had had the book. Someone had to have the book without their having to borrow it from anyone. Now, now substitute existing and and being you know having existence and being caused to exist uh, for the book and getting the book here, and you see how this illustrates uh, a version of the cosmological argument. This is Richard Pertil's uh, illustration, and he says, "Well, look at any." contingent reality, anything that does exist but doesn't have to. It says the same principles apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing that you're talking about has existence, then the process of it getting existence can't have gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. And then you start trying to unpack, well, what would be the nature of a thing that just has existence without having to get it from something else, unlike all the things that we're familiar with around us in the world? So uh, cosmological argument number one, you could boil it down to something like this. Uh, Since it's impossible for everything to be caused, if anything exists, then there must exist an uncaused something. Two, something exists. Three, therefore, there must exist an uncaused thing. You can motivate the premises. Number one, you can say, well, look, there can't be an infinite regress of causes. See the above illustration. And, well, anyway, there's nothing outside of everything to cause anything. What is there outside of everything? So it's impossible for everything to be caused because there's nothing outside of that to do with any causing. You've got to be a thing in order to do causing of things, yeah? And number two, something exists. Uh, This is self-contradictory to deny. (laughs) Um, So uh, this seems a pretty robust argument to me, but I'm I'm trying to get that robustness into a a fairly shortly expressed uh, argument that you can kind of illustrate with an everyday illustration uh, and make it sort of accessible. Um, I think that's what you're trying to sort of aim at, this conjunction of accessibility and robustness. And they say, well, so what? But and okay, physical things, for example, are contingent things that therefore have causes. 
Uh, therefore, an uncaused thing can't be a physical thing. And you can see there's a sort of tie into the Kalam type argument here where you say the fact that there's a beginning to the universe uh, sort of highlights the fact that there's a, a, a first physical event, for example. Uh, but if physical events are the sort of thing that need causes, then that must have a cause. But it, the cause of the first physical event can't be a physical event or etc. Uh, so if something exists but it's not physical then just by definition it's non-physical call that spiritual whatever you know not a physical thing uh, that certainly contradicts a, a metaphysically materialistic worldview um, but is to be expected on a theistic worldview so you could you could put it into an abductive form you know again you were saying earlier which worldview makes the best explanation out of this data that there's an uncaused something um, Clearly not the materialist one. Theism has the has the edge over materialism in explaining this particular piece of data. Uh, Dallas Willard, American Christian philosopher, put it this way: the dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness of the series of dependencies that underlie the existence of any particular any given physical state, logically implies at least one self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. And that's like game over for materialism, if that's the case. But not only the, not only the very existence of nature, the universe, the cosmos, but the, 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 the so-called uh, fine-tuning, looking at the structure of that nature that exists. So this is a version of the design argument. The way Bill Craig puts it, the, the fine, and I'm just going to sort of assume that you know about fine-tuning, I could illustrate it and so on for an audience. The fine-tuning of the universe, you could explain it due to physical necessity or, or chance or design, basically. So if you can eliminate uh, the two of, uh, explanations of necessity or chance, that would leave you with design. How do you make that uh, elimination? Uh, Stephen Hawking recently deceased Stephen Hawking in his last book, uh, The Grand Design, noted that the fundamental numbers and the form of the apparent laws of nature are not demanded by logic or physical principle. But I, I'm just going to quote him on this and saying, I, yep, I agree with that. That rules out physical necessity. Uh, uh, another way to go with this is to note that uh, atheists often like objecting to this kind of argument by appealing to multiverse theory. If you're appearing to multiverse theory, it's very hard to then say that, you, that the universe had, you know, ne universes necessarily have to take a certain structure because there are lots of different ways that it could have been, you're saying. <laughs> um, so how do we make this decision between chance or design? Uh, again, everyday illustration, but I, I'm drawing in the background here on intelligent design theory kind of reasoning, but here's just an everyday illustration of it. Uh, someone enters the sequence of numbers into a cash machine and it gives them money. Were they lucky? Or did they know the PIN number for the account card that they happened to have with them? Uh, when a complex event matches uh, an independently given a functionally specified pattern, we infer design. Uh, Bill Craig uses this card playing example uh, in a poker game. Um, I'm given to understand that uh, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It was one deal out of all the possible deals. Okay, so it's improbable. Um, but if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, 
uh, you can bet that this is the result of chance, not the result of chance, but it's the product of design. And going back to Stephen Hawking, he says for our theoretical uh, models of Big Bang inflation to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. Uh, he's basically saying for our models of inflationary cosmology to work, the fine-tuning of the universe had to exhibit specified complexity. He's just saying that in, in different terminology. Uh, but given that things that exhibit specified complexity are probably designed, it follows, therefore, that the fine-tuning is probably designed. Um, so the first, I would divide it, we were talking about scientia and science and things earlier, I divide it up this way. This, this argument, I think, is scientific, uh, but when you extend it to get to the theistic conclusion, you're, you're, you're out of science as we delineate it these days, uh, you're into theology, um, but all that is natural philosophy anyway, yeah, <laughs> it's all... Uh, a science here. Uh, how about a meta-ethical moral argument? Um, moral values uh, are either objective facts that are independent of us, the sort of things that we discover, or not. <laughs> uh, in which case they're subjective, dependent on and relative to human uh, beings or human society. So you could argue um, one objective moral values exist, that's a whole argument around that clause, of course. That secondly, the existence of objective moral values entails the existence of, of a god of some kind, a, a transcendent, holy, good, personal reality, which is at least a slice of what we mean by god. Therefore, a, a god, with a small g there, at least, exists. Um, always quote an atheist when you can, and when you can agree with them. Um, so this is atheist Russ Schaefer Lando, who's written a lot about meta-ethics, he's a, a moral objectivist. And he argues, for example, he says, uh, some moral values are true, others are false. My thinking them doesn't make them so. And his, uh, one of his arguments for this, he says, individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. And the best explanation of this is that there are moral standards that are not of our own making. If they were of our own making, if they depended upon us, we couldn't get them wrong as societies, as human beings, because they would just be up to us. Um, you know. Uh, but an objective moral values, what are they when you start analysing them in, in our experiential reality uh, of a moral value is that it's a it's a moral ideal it's something that it prescribes not it's not merely descriptive it obligates our behavior uh, it's something before which we feel appropriately guilty when we contravene it but an idea or a character seems to imply heavily a, a mind of some kind, a prescription would seem to require a prescriber. An obligation and also the notion of guilt both seem to require someone who obligates us, to whom we are rightly obligated, uh, before, before whom we are appropriately feeling guilt. Uh, so there's just a sort of summary of the argument from H.P. Owen, a Welsh philosopher. So on the one hand, Objective moral claims, they transcend, go beyond every human person and society and so on. On the other hand, uh, 
it's just contradictory to assert that the impersonal, non-personal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. You can say, you know, I'm obligated by the table. The teapot told me to do it. You, you know, that's crazy talk, yeah? Uh, he says the only solution to this paradox uh, is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. So because there are objective things, they transcend he finite persons, but because they're, they have this moral obligatory prescriptory reality, there's got to be something personal about it. So you need a transcendent personal reality to resolve the paradox. This is J.L. Mackey, who um, sort of a famous uh, Oxford philosopher of the previous generation, uh, it's still a set text when I was at uni, first of all, that tells you how long ago I went to uni, uh, said that the objective moral, moral values make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Uh, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of god. What he did with this uh, was said, well, this is a bit of a problem for me because I'm an atheist, therefore I'm going to embrace ethical relativism and subjectivism and say there are no objective moral values. Um, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. Okay, you see, he's trying to be consistent. Why he should value consistency, objectively speaking, is an interesting question now that he's gone this way. Um, I just ask which, you know, which is really the bigger problem? If you say, well, you know, here's a problem. Okay, well, which is the bigger problem? Having to believe that a god exists or having to believe that moral subjectivism is true? Uh, I know which I think is the bigger problem. <laughs> So I've, I've just dipped our toe into uh, some arguments that have premises that come from sort of modern science and so on, some arguments that are more rooted in our everyday experience. Now everybody has everyday moral uh, experience of the world and engages very readily with, with moral experiences. Um, but actually I, I would want to point out there's a broader range, a far broader range of theistic arguments than most people realise. Um, do you know about the arguments from qualia? Do you know the argument from, from colour? Uh, do you know about the, the argument from rationality? Uh, the argument from simplicity? The argument from love? Um, Etc. Uh, Daniel Dennett uh, once praised Dawkins' book The God Delusion for, as he said, flattening all the serious arguments for the existence of God, which of course it doesn't. That's another story. Uh, Dawkins devotes 37 pages, I counted them, uh, to a cursory rejection of 10 theistic arguments. Uh, of nine theistic arguments that are mentioned in uh, the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, big, thick, a uh, hardcover book came out in 2009. Uh, of those nine arguments, only five are mentioned in The God Delusion. Uh, Alvin Plantinga once famously presented a paper called A, a, a D Couple of Dozen or So Theistic Arguments. And that paper spawned an academic conference in 2014. You can find it on YouTube. And just yesterday, my pre-ordered copy of the book from that conference uh, the Plantinga Project, two dozen or so arguments from God for God came out. But this is this is very much sort of graduate level uh, reading uh, in philosophy of religion. Uh, but I do have a little flick through here uh, later to see. So you'll find sort of old familiars like you know William Lane Craig talking about the the Kalan cosmological uh, argument. Uh, 
but uh, we've got people on here talking about the, the argument from the confluence of proper function and reliability, um, the uh, arguments from intuition, moral arguments, uh, the argument from colours and flavours, uh, the argument from love, um, um, Providence Miracle, C.S. Lewis's argument from nostalgia, something that I've written a, a, a about, and so on. Um, few have heard about this, the, the argument from nostalgia, or the, the argument from desire, which is a whole family of arguments that seek to move from an analysis of natural or innate human desire uh, to support for theism. Something uh, Lewis famously used the terms romantic and, and joy to name. Um, he particularly focused on this sort of bittersweet experience of, of feeling drawn to a transcendent, innately desirable something more beyond one's worldly grasp, a, a sort of mystical experience that's, that's occasioned by, but left unsatisfied by various worldly triggers um, that are often a bit person-dependent, but often have to do with beauty or natural grandeur. And he says, you know, you sort of look at the look at the distant misty hills and get this longing for for a home. It's like, oh, but if you go to the misty hills and like if you owned them, it's like that still wouldn't satisfy the desire that they've sparked in you because it's not really the hills that you're wanting. It's it's well, what is it? You know, it's this sort of transcendent something. Uh, Lewis presented this argument from design a variety of modes and rhetorical forms, including his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that's why it has that title, uh, in perhaps one of the most famous sermons of the 20th century, The Weight of Glory. Um, I've defended five basic forms of this argument, um, prima facie, abductive, deductive, inductive and reductio versions of this argument um, in debate uh, in a recent book, C.S. Lewis's Christian Apologetics, which is a series of debates over arguments made particularly famous by Lewis. So let me give you just two brief examples of that and we'll come to a close. So an inductive version might go something like this. You might argue that humans have an innate desire for God or an innate desire for one or more states of being for which God's existence is a necessary precondition. Um, so you might say uh, humans have an innate desire to actually be really forgiven uh, and that the existence of something like God is a precondition for that desire ever really being satisfied. Uh, secondly, that most innate human desires are such that there exists some object capable of satisfying them and that therefore God probably exists. Or uh, I think this is probably my favourite sort of version of the argument it sort of ties into the whole debate about you know nihilism and the meaning of life and things uh, an existential reductio version of the argument that says that given that humans possess these innate i'm going to call them existential desires sort of bundle them all up together um, our existence would be absurd to borrow some language from the french existentialists absurd to the extent that it's impossible for any human to ever have any of those desires satisfied the more of those desires, existential desires, couldn't be satisfied, the more absurd our existence would be. Uh, read, uh, read Camus, uh, the myth of, myth of Sisyphus, and so on. But secondly, humans uh, possess innate ex existential desires that are probably impossible to satisfy unless something like God exists. Therefore, unless God exists, our existence is probably absurd. Uh, at least to a substantial extent. 
Oh, yeah, that's a bit down. Now, here's where the, the rescue premise kind of comes in. However, our existence is probably not absurd, at least not to any huge extent. Uh, well, if that's true, five, therefore, God probably exists. Um, I think the crucial premise here is going to come down to why should I believe four? I'm going to say, well, why haven't you committed suicide yet? You, I think you believe premise four <laughs> already. Um, you just haven't thought through the consequences of what that might mean when you put it in the context of thinking carefully about your existential desires and, and, and so on. Um, we, I'm going to argue we have this intuitive sense that our existence is not actually uh, absurd. Uh, and actually, indeed, you know, you might argue in this context that to, to try and argue that our existence is absurd, you're going to have to end up arguing that there isn't a God. <laughs> you certainly can't just assume that there's not to beg the question against the, the argument. Uh, so, some recommended sources, and we're going from the, the light, easy reading on the left-hand side here all the way through to the sort of graduate-level sort of stuff on the right. Um, uh, um, Bill Craig's On Guard uh, for Students, which is his version of the On Guard uh, textbook aimed at non-believers. I would go to, highly recommended. That's the sort of... Uh, much more accessible digest of the sort of material you'll get in his Reasonable Faith textbook, but much more accessible. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, uh, 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 cold uh, crime scene detective uh, in the States, um, brings his professional expertise as a, as a detective who solves cold cases into explaining about sort of abductive reasoning and so on and best explanation arguments and things and then applies that to understanding various arguments for, for God. Uh, a couple of my own books here, Faithful Guide to Philosophy and C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Um, then we're getting on to things like uh, Craig and Morland's uh, Philosophical Foundations for Christian Worldview. They've got a couple of chapters on uh, a few of the arguments for God in there. Um, in Defense of Natural Theology, a Posthumian Assessment by Senet and Grutius. Um, some of you, if you're doing philosophy at all, will sort of know the, the looming figure of David Hume over the whole debate about arguments from God since the 18th century. Um, this book um, is putting the debate in uh, of sort of the fact that many people sort of just think, oh, you know, David Hume put paid to all that arguing about God stuff. But, you know, the debate's over and the atheists won. Uh, this book is saying, uh, hang on a minute, no, there has been a history of philosophy since then and uh, Hume has not fared well. Uh, and then a couple of books that I mentioned in the talk, they're uh, at the really sort of high level here, Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology and uh, the Two Dozen or So Arguments for God book. So I will leave my remarks there and open up uh, to you. Do come and have a little browse and look at these later if you are interested in any of them.